Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Tracy Thomason. Tracy began working in the software development industry 31 years ago. Having grown up in the 1970s, he entered the workforce with a plant job mentality, thinking that he would get a good job with a good company and work there the rest of his life. Somewhere along the way, he figured out that having one job is like having all your financial eggs in a single basket, and his basket got toppled over several times. Today, he focuses on multiple streams of income and believes that you should too, because a good job at a good company no longer guarantees job security. It's up to you to create your own security. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks for having yeah. me on. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, just want to kick this off with some programming questions, and then we're going to get into the whole like monetizing your skills piece here. But to, to get this party started, how did, you get, how did you get started in software development? Really, I got started in the 70s, 70s, early 80s. Our school got a grant when I was in grade school. And so this is late 70s, I guess, and got an Apple computer. Now, this was your pre-Mac. This was the old, it was a box with the keyboard built into it and stuff. And I fell in love with that thing, as did a few of my classmates. My mom needed to buy a computer because my mom and dad owned some apartments and a, a small restaurant. They needed to buy a computer to do some of the book work because at the time my mom had been doing the book work on these, you know, giant ledger sheets in pencil. And I just, I remember every year during tax season, tax season was like a two month ordeal for her to go through with a calculator and add all that up. So they bought a computer, ended up buying an Apple II, Apple II Plus, something like that. And I spent all of my junior high and high school years playing on that thing and then realized that as I was getting out of high school, that I did not want to sit in an office and wear a suit and tie every day. Because at the time, to work in the computer industry, you were working for IBM. IBM was the computer industry, you know, going mm. through the 80s and stuff. And that was, you know, Mr. Suit and Tie look. A good friend of mine's dad was a surveyor. He'd gotten a civil engineering degree, and he wore boots and jeans and drove a four-wheel drive pickup to work every day. And I'm like, man, that's the job for me. <laughs> so went to Texas Tech University enrolled in civil engineering and was super excited about that. Somewhere along the way, I lost my interest in civil engineering because my whole interest in civil engineering was to wear boots and jeans to work every day, you know, <laughs> which now for a programmer, that's just, that's average attire. And a lot of the guys I used to work with were wearing like shorts and flip flops. So that's all changed. I got in, switched from civil engineering to a math major. And I'm going through math, and my math advisor told me I had to have a minor. And I'm like, what minor should I get in here? I, mean, I didn't tell you. In between those two, there was a slight flirtation with journalism until I figured out how much journalists made. And then I skipped out of journalism very quickly. I never actually <laughs> shifted my major into it. I just worked on the university newspaper for a few years, mm -hmm. paying my way through school. So math advisor tells me I need to get a minor. And he said, why don't you take computer science? I'm like, okay, okay, I'll take computer science. So I enroll in computer science and about a year later, my math advisor says, you know, you should switch majors. You're getting B's in math and you're getting A's in computer science and you're writing computer programs to do your math homework for you. <laughs> why don't you switch? And so I 
ended up back in the degree that I really didn't want. But by that time, you started seeing the guys in jeans and hoodies going to work. It wasn't a suit and tie industry anymore. And so I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, I can do this. And <laughs> fell in love with it. I loved programming. I love creating solutions. There's a blend of art and science that goes with writing computer software. And I just, I love that aspect of it. I loved being able to solve problems, big ones and small ones. And that's how I got my start. Yeah, that, that's an awesome story. And I was curious, what is the first success that you had or that you would consider a success as a software developer? The first success I would say that I had, I'm going to go way back with it, would have been my senior project. First really big success, the one that I just, it wasn't I wrote something and, hey, this worked. It was I sweated and bled and cried. Or I didn't actually bleed, fortunately, but there was probably some <laughs> crying. <laughs> just stressed out over my senior project. And I realized this is, probably seems simple now. And, and the solution I came up with is kind of dumb considering the technologies we have today, but those technologies didn't really exist back then. I wrote using AD86 assembly, wrote an operating system that was a multitasking operating system to run a point of sale software solution. So the hmm. software solution and the operating system were all one combined piece of software. Hmm. And it connected using, and again, I cannot explain how I ended up with this solution, but using a comm splitter, I did all the network connectivity using the comm ports hmm. and would have had a splitter and you could have a server and up to four workstations doing your point of sale for a little business if you wanted to. And it, it kind of worked. You know, there was about the last three days of the project. I didn't sleep. And then I went in and handed it in. I got a B on the project. I took that as a success. And then I slept for about 72 hours. I'm pretty sure uh, <laughs> people thought I might be dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, so, so if I am hearing you right, part of that project was hardware and software. Is that? Right. Mm -hmm. And not a great deal of hardware, but it was direct hardware interaction. So mm. directly working with the COM ports to enable the connectivity and controlling that interrupt. And it was all interrupt driven multitasking because on an 8086 machine, there really wasn't multitasking. Yeah. The way we do it now. So, uh, and uh, another little like nugget that I'm hearing there is those of us that didn't go through that era of software development, we have no idea how good we have it. Is that, is that <laughs> what I'm hearing? <laughs> so I've only written, two programs, there are really two test programs in Python. It was like, oh, this is so nice. You, you can do these things. It's sort of like the days when Visual Basic came out. Let's say that was 97, 98, something like that. When Visual Basic first came out, I'm like, oh my God, I can just drag a, a text box onto the floor and <laughs> drop it and it handles all the input for me. Because again, I had written back, we were doing software for the cotton industry. It was cotton gins, cotton warehouses, and cotton buyers. Hmm. We were hooking up to sell physical bales of cotton. But we were also doing accounting and inventory control and things like that. And I'd gone through, and we were writing in C++. I had created these little user boxes because at the time, we were coding every user box on the screen. And you can just imagine, to classify a bale of cotton, 
there are 26 or 27 factors or hmm. values that the color, it's, it's called the grade. So you've got the color, the micronaire, this, it's been 20 years or 25 years since I've done this, but <laughs> um, I may not get the words right if there's any cotton industry people listening. <laughs> but we had to code up every single box we dropped on the form. And so I took about a week and in assembly wrote these routines where you could just call it and give it some parameters and it would drop a box on the screen and it would handle all the editing. I was pretty proud of that. And then Visual Basic comes along and we're like, holy cow, this is amazing. And then we switched into Delphi and we're doing stuff in Delphi. And of course, now the tools, I've been doing most of my coding lately in C Sharp and things like that. And it's just, man, you drop things on there and go to town. It lets you spend a lot more time on the back end on the business logic and not as much time tinkering with that front end mess that just to try to get it right and consistent. Yeah. Hallelujah for those tools. I, uh, um, especially for somebody like me that doesn't have a background in software development, like I didn't get my degree in it, but I'm still able to be productive at work. It's like, I'm super thankful for stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Me me too. Yeah. Yeah. Productivity, my friend. Yeah. So I was curious, uh, cause I know you have, you kind of, uh, lean towards, uh, real estate solutions these days. And I was curious if you see any trends for innovation in real estate related SaaS. Definitely. There's a lot of stuff coming out right now. And so I just really moved into real estate. And part of that was due to the fact that I, it's a long story in the job front. My wife and I have been investing in real estate for about 20 years. And the last two years, I would say, we've been looking at how do we align our day jobs with this investment strategy? Because for us, real estate has been very profitable, I suppose, as far as building our wealth and building our our personal net worth. So I just left my last project management job and I've now gotten my real estate license. And so when I, when I wrote in there in the pre-interview form that I'm working on solutions in the real estate industry, that's actually helping people find homes and investments. Okay. The software on that side of it though, there are amazing things coming out of that. And I'm hoping to add to that. I'd like to bring my tech skills along with me because that's one of the things I've always found. And I'm sure it's the same for you and it's the same for everybody listening to this who's done software development, you get into your world, whatever your niche is, and then you start looking at, I could write a program. I could write a a small solution to help with this. And then that grows and that grows. And pretty pretty soon it's not a little program that goes and does something for you. It's an application or it becomes a suite of applications. And that's just how our minds are wired to think about those things. And so I'm sure I'll be bringing some of that along. I've got some ideas that I want to follow through with, but looking at real estate software and especially SaaS, Keller Williams, and that's the agency of the brokerage that I've signed up with. Mm-hmm. Keller Williams has some amazing technology. When you go look around at all of the different brokerages, real estate brokerages, Keller Williams has just some absolutely amazing set of software. They have invested heavily in technology. And I think that's an amazing thing. That is just giving those people who have signed up at Keller Williams a severe advantage from the technology standpoint. Hmm. There's a lot of cool things coming out in that. And you you see it even in the consumer side, not just from the realtor side. 
You've got Keller Williams has some amazing consumer facing applications, but ones that your listeners are probably more familiar with, Realtor.com, Zillow, there's a lot of stuff happening in the tech industry geared towards the consumer as far as real estate goes. So mm -hmm. it's, it's exciting. It's interesting to see. Yeah, I think I was messing around with Redfin recently. They have, uh, it's like the pricing is really friendly if you just wanted to kind of dink around and get, like their data sets are insane. I don't even know. I mean, that that's kind of like my kind of nerding, nerding out area. It's like, how do I, I mean, talk about an ocean of data. Like, how do you even begin to like, you know, yeah. track value out of this? You could just play around with it the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, heck yeah. So uh, I was I was curious because I know you also have experience with agile software development methodologies. You're a scrum, a, 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 is it a scrum? What what's scrum the lab? Scrum master. Okay. Scrum master. So, yes, sir. So I'm a certified scrum master and a certified scrum professional through Scrum Alliance. Mm -hmm. That's been something that really I feel like moved my career forward. I, we got involved in Agile, I want to say 2008, 2009. I don't remember exactly when it was. Kind of late to the game with Agile really growing up in the software industry starting, I want to say, back in the early 90s. By the time it got to the company I worked for in Lubbock, Texas, you know, it was pretty well entrenched in a lot of firms, but we'd never heard of it. And so one of our VPs went to a conference one time and apparently heard about Agile and came back with this one sheet. I'm talking, you know, one sheet of paper, just the front. Well, that's actually a, a statement. That wasn't the one, the one sheet. And he laid it on my boss's desk, and he said, do this. And we were heavily entrenched in waterfall at that point in time. In fact, I remember I had one of my projects. I kept it for years. And then when I left that company, I'm sure I, cause it was, you know, proprietary information. I'm sure I either left it there or it may have been shredded by that point, but I had probably a three inch thick printed document of specs on a piece of software I was writing that came out of our business analyst. And so we were very, very entrenched in what, and this thing was taking months and months and months. And my boss came to me at one point in time. He's like, what's taking so long? And I'm just like, it's this. You know, and every time I send it to those guys, they send it back with changes. So we got involved in Agile. The VP lays the document on my boss's desk and says, do this. My boss takes a look at it, and I'm pretty sure he was thinking, I don't want to do this. And he lays <laughs> it on my desk, and he says, do this. And I'm looking at it going, what in the world is this? So we did what every Agile team does. We took what we were doing we added daily stand-up meetings to it, and we were agile. <laughs> Those are my air quotes for anybody who's not seeing the video of it. Agile. <laughs> we hammered around on that for oh, a few months and realized we just weren't getting anywhere. And I don't remember which book I bought next. It was probably, I'm looking at my bookshelf, it was probably Jeff Sutherland's book, uh, Scrum twice the work and half the time. And so instead of, and, I, and I've got that somewhere on one of the bookshelves around here, fantastic book if okay. you guys haven't read that, love that book. And he takes it really to an interesting point of out of software development, how this works in other industries. And he talks about a school, I wanna say in Sweden or the Netherlands or somewhere, 
but talked about a school where the students, and this is a high school, the students were teaching themselves, and I think it was chemistry in agile teams. Hmm. And the teacher, the school teacher, was really there just as the scrum master, as a little bit of a functionary to help them keep moving themselves forward. And that just blew my mind. I was just so impressed with how that was working. So really started to fall in love with Agile at that point and went back to my boss and said, okay, I want to do more with this. And I found uh, one of the Agile conferences, which I think is Keep Austin Agile was the first one I went to. Went to that, fell more in love with it, got my certification, got my next certification. Yeah. And I talk about Agile all the time. So one of my cousins works for a company that brings Broadway shows. And he's out of Oklahoma. So Broadway shows in the Oklahoma and Arkansas and some locations here in West Texas. And they started using agile practices and scrum to plan and bring Broadway shows to hmm. the cities. Wow. And then the year that I was the district director for our Toastmasters district, we used agile as a way of helping manage the district and deliver the district on the district's mission, which is to, have more clubs in our district and have more distinguished clubs. And we use an agile format. Now it was a modified agile format because we weren't story pointing and things like that. But it, to me, it's just been fantastic and it's changed the way I look at things. Hmm. So now when my wife and I go in and work on a rent house or something like that, there've been a couple of times where I've taken post-it notes and I've put, made a Kanban board. Yeah. On the wall. These are the things we need to do. We've, we've simplified that because it's hard to, keep post-it notes on a wall that you're about to paint <laughs> you got the windows open and you're airing the plate and post-it notes are going everywhere. So we started using more of a to-do list type thing an application on our phones and we keep it in that. And we do the same thing. We've got a little vacation rental that we have here in town. And when we flip it, we've got our little, we just check them off, check them off, check them off. And we, every time we have to go flip it and get it ready for the next visitor to come in, we just load up the template and we go through and, run through our process. And so it's a very agile oriented process just with a to-do list instead of a Kanban board. So yeah. love agile, love to talk agile, probably talk agile too much. This isn't the agile show. Sorry. <laughs> I, we, we could go another hour. On agile, <laughs> it, it's all good. Maybe we might've answered this question already, but I was just curious at what size of a project does agile become non-negotiable? You mean you have to be doing agile? Or I guess in your opinion, like, like you would kind of be like insane to not be uh, leveraging this methodology or am I showing some ignorance there? And that's not like no, a, no, a very no. good question. No, no, you're, you're absolutely spot on. In software, I would say, man, when I'm writing apps for myself and I've got a couple of projects I'm working on, I've got a new website that I'm working on. When I'm doing that, I throw together a Kanban board. For myself and I prioritize the items and I just use something like Trello something free and easy uh, I've been using Meister tasks sometimes I move to a new platform just to experiment with it yeah freed camp is kind of fun Meister task is fun but usually I end up back on Trello love Jira from Atlassian love mm -hmm. Jira and but it's, there's not a free version I think yes Trello is their free version I think Atlassian bought Jira mm -hmm. so I do really an agile process on my own stuff. Okay. I don't, 
I don't follow, if I'm doing it just for myself, I don't follow Scrum specifically because I usually don't go point my projects and try to size my projects through effort, you know, story points, just because I'm going to come in if it's a personal project and I'm going to pick the top task and I'm going to work on it today. And then I may not come back to my project for a week or a month, you know, mm. if, it's, if it's not something that's really, you know, I'm trying to make money from it or something like that. If it's something I'm trying to make money from, I'm a little more focused, of course. Yeah. But from a company perspective, I would say once you get two developers on a project, you start, you start bumping up against non-negotiable. I think you've got to have a way to get those people lined up, get the team on the same track, focusing on the things. It's way too easy. And, and I know you know this. It's way too easy to get into a team environment and you've got this giant project. And so your time is kind of unregulated. Yeah. And because it's unregulated, it's real easy to get off in the weeds on pet projects. You're like, oh man, I really want to add this feature to the software. And this project we have has got a six month timeline on it anyway. Nobody's going to notice if I go work on this for a week. Mm -hmm. No, nobody's going to notice. And I will tell you straight up, I've done that a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to go add this feature to the software. But going, going back just to the title of your podcast, Profitable, that's not always a profitable thing. Yeah. Sometimes those cool features don't actually drive revenue. And as companies, I know that's one of the things that a company has to be doing. It has to be looking at producing revenue or producing income of some kind. Mm -hmm. so to me, you get two people in on a project, it's probably time to start looking at agile practices. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'm, uh, we just recently actually entered that, that space at my work. I was kind of the solo, the solo, um, person there. And then we got another person on board. And so, yeah, I'm thankful that you mentioned that I, I might yeah. need to put this on my goals for the year, even though we're yeah. three months into the year already, but, uh, <laughs> so I was curious, uh, regarding, uh, WordPress, cause I know this is a passion button for you. Mm -hmm. Is there, do you see a niche that WordPress solves better than any other web framework? Is that the right word? And then, and then with the same question, I guess, is there an, another niche that maybe it should be kind of avoided because something is better? Like where does, does it, does it solve all problems or is it very good at specific problems? That's my question. It solves a lot of problems and creates a lot of other ones. Okay. <laughs> I love WordPress. I use it for most of my websites. There are a few that I don't use WordPress for, and those are usually the, it's either something that just got kind of slapped together or stuff that I want to be easy to hand off to someone else to manage because WordPress is powerful. It's simple if you stay within the guardrails but it's easy to step past the guardrails and go do something crazy and crash the site. Usually with people who think they know more than they actually know, like, Oh, I know how to do this. And then they go add some plugin that has been you know, deprecated or has not been updated in five years and has a serious security flaw. And they add that to the system. And the next thing you know, your entire website's down because of malware. 
but for somebody who's got a little bit of a, a technical bent, I would say WordPress is a fantastic tool just because you can get in there, you can plug into the backend database to MySQL or uh, MariaDB, whichever one they happen to be using, and you can put some code together and, you know, being a coder, that's how you, that's how you and I are going to see the world. How can I advance this a little bit? What more could I do? How can I automate some things? And so WordPress gives you that functionality as a developer to extend the platform, but just as a platform on its own, like it's very flexible with the skinning tools like Elementor and Divi from Elegant Themes. You can really go in and make WordPress beautiful and functional. It can also be simple and straightforward. But for some of the other things, Blogger from Google or Blogspot, which I don't ever know which one to call it. You can go to both URLs and you end up at the same place. I think, I think they call it <laughs> Blogger there. I use Blogger for some things, for especially for Toastmasters that okay. are you know, nonprofit groups and something that I need to be able to hand to someone else because Blogger, it's sort of like Visual Basic. It holds your hand and doesn't let you step past the guardrails without extreme effort. Mm -hmm. So even my annual beer review that I do, the 12 Beers of Christmas, that's a blogger website just because when I started it, it was kind of a joke. And we threw together this website, my daughter and I, we were stuck in Lubbock. My family lives north and my wife, well, I guess she was fiance at the time. My fiance and her daughter had gone south to Houston and Lubbock was like the dry spot in the middle of a blizzard at Christmas time. <laughs> snow to the north, snow to the south. We weren't going anywhere. And so we went to the store and bought 12 different craft beers. And we decided we would review those beers during the 12 days of Christmas. And it's just turned into a thing now. And I've just left it on Blogger because, I don't know, it's easy. So Blogger is yeah. a great tool for the novice. Wix, Squarespace, some of those. I think those are also great tools for somebody who's not needing to code and doesn't. You don't have to code to use WordPress. I shouldn't say it like that. But I think WordPress gives you that flexibility if you've got a programmer mindset to extend the possibilities of what your website can do. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for uh, sharing that color on that. Uh, one, one thing I do like to do on this podcast because it's kind of geared towards the Python programmers. I was, I was coached once upon a time. If I, uh, if I don't pick a niche, I'm basically not talking to anyone. So I decided, yeah. Hey, I'm going to talk to the Python programmers. I love it. So, uh, but I, I have noticed something in the community where we kind of get real religious about the tools that we're using. And so I like to be, you know, bring up these concepts like, Hey, there are these other things like whole other ecosystems out there. And, uh, it's just good to be aware of it, I guess, is why I bring it up. So, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Python is such an amazing tool. I, I've never tried to plug Python into WordPress, but I'm sure through an API that can be done. I've done a lot of just straight, because WordPress is written in PHP, and so I've done a lot of just straight PHP coding. Mm -hmm. plug that in. And that's really how I ended up coding in PHP was wanting to extend WordPress. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. That's, uh, that I'm, I'm hoping everybody, you know, maybe just takes, takes an opportunity to check it out. Um, so regarding like diversifying your income sources, I, I love this topic. Uh, I'm, I'm super curious, uh, learning from someone like yourself that's kind of been working down this path for a while. If you had to start over on diversifying your income sources, 
what would you do first? First, I would probably pick up a Python book and I would <laughs> figure out how to put together a small app that I could sell for, sell and resell and resell for, you know, a small amount of money. Okay, so I brought a couple of books with me to talk about. Well, okay. I pulled a couple of books off the bookshelf to talk about. So this is one of my favorites. It's the $100 Startup. And it's by, I do not know how you pronounce his name. I've been pronouncing it Chris Guillebeau. But I don't, which, because to me it looks French. I think maybe he pronounces it Chris Guillebeau. I could okay. be wrong with the $100 Startup. This is, is an amazing, amazing book that really changed the way I started looking at things. And this goes back to the, the comment I made to you about having a job does not guarantee job security. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take you on a little bit of a journey. Go for it. Yeah. I had a great job. So first job out of college, I had a two hour daily commute, worked there for about a year and a half. And I found another job here locally in Lubbock that I didn't have to drive to because I was driving to a little town named called Brownfield, Texas. Got another job, worked there, and that was in the cotton industry. And I really liked that job. And we had a great culture at the office. We were doing things that were valuable. I had meaning and purpose, which is so, so important mm -hmm. to have that. At the time, I didn't realize how important that was. But looking back, that's one of those things, really important to have that. And towards the end of the dot-com bust, we were not a dot-com. We had a, a website, but we were really, that wasn't the focus was our web interface. But towards the end of the dot-com bust, we got purchased by a dot-com. And in three months, they, three, no, I'm sorry, six months, they spent $3 million creating two non-functioning websites. They were just pretty websites with no back end to them. We were supposed to supply the back end. I could see this heading south, so I left this company that I really liked because new management took us in a direction that just did not seem to be viable to me. And about three months later, they laid everybody off. Not oh, due to wow. me leaving. Not due to me leaving. Was, <laughs> they were reconsolidating the entire team to Austin. Yeah. So a friend of mine had reached out and said, "Hey, would you like to come and work at our, our company?" So I went to a manufacturing company. Really liked that job. Worked there for about a year. We'd heard that we had two sister companies, so we had a holding company owned all of us. We heard the two sister companies were having financial problems, and that was bleeding into us, and there might be layoffs. So one day I showed up to the office. This is a year or so into working there. Showed up to the office, and everybody's looking kind of glum, like, uh-oh. You know, and this is the senior management's looking kind of glum, like, uh-oh, mm -hmm. we're going to, today's going to be the day they announce layoffs. Hmm. We had this beautiful outdoor courtyard. It was kind of between two wings of the building. And here in Lubbock, it's really windy at times. So, but you could sit out there nearly any day between these two wings of the building and it would block the wind and it was nice and still. So we had a lot of company meetings out there. And the president said, hey, can everybody come outside for just a little bit? We need to talk. I'm like, okay. So we walk out onto the courtyard and a sheriff's deputy locked the door behind us. Oh, wow. Bankruptcy. The sheriff's deputies escorted us back in to get our personal belongings and we were out of a job. So I went to work for another company, worked there and like that company worked there for about 17 years. As with any company, there's, there's ups and downs. And I'd hit a, a minor down, 
minor to major down period in the company. I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. And I got a call from a headhunter with a big check dangled in front of me. I'm like, oh, this sounds awesome. So I went to work for this company. I was there a year and a half. And during that year and a half, they went through four rounds of layoffs. Oh, wow. And my team kept being protected. But another headhunter called me and made me an offer. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to leave. I like this team. So I called my boss. I said, look, I've been given an offer. I don't want to leave. I'm not asking for a raise. I just want to know that there's some security in this because we've had these layoffs. And he said, to be honest, I'm not sure we'll still have a team in three months. We're talking about cutting the whole team. Oh, wow. Great. So I went to another company and I found it was just not a good culture fit. And so this, this goes to the whole point of, even though that, that one company, I worked there for 17 years, good company, but you're not in control of your own life. Having that one job does not mean you have job security unless you're willing to put up with whatever's thrown at you or the stress of multiple layoffs. I mean, four layoffs in a year and a half. What's that? Every four months or something? Yeah, that's stressful. And that's stressful. Yeah. And so really started going back to this book, The $100 Startup. And the point this guy makes, I'm just going to simplify because he's got great stories and just fantastic examples in there that I awesome. think appeal directly to, especially the, the Python and app development market. Yeah. His basic concept is instead of having one job that ha provides 100% of your income, because if you lose that one job, you lose 100% of your income. You need 10 jobs, each supplying 10% of your income. Then if you lose one, you still got 90% of your income. And now you can't go, this doesn't mean you're a greeter at Walmart and you're a barista at Starbucks and you mow lawns on the weekends and you, you do all of these things. It may mean you do some of that, but it's talking about passive income that you're developing by creating an application or you're writing a book in your space. So if I remember correctly, you work in, you worked in at least in oil and gas for a while, right? Yes. Are, are you still in oil and gas? I, I lucked myself back into a, into like more of a programming role there. It's, it's oh, insane, nice. man. I, uh, yeah, it's been a while since we talked, but it's like, I'm really resonating with what you're saying here. Cause I experienced exactly what you're talking about firsthand. Yep. But, uh, yeah, for the time being with oil, oil prices like this, it's a little scary, but, uh, yeah, carry on. <laughs> so, this is, so this is a great time for you to put together how to write a book on Python programming in the oil and gas industry. Right. And then you've got something that you can sell for forever, potentially. And I don't know if you can hear it or not. We just, we're having a horrible thunderstorm right now. Or, okay. Or I don't know if it's coming through or not. I, I thought I heard like a little wind. I was like, is it windy in there? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's wind and then we may have some hail. I can hear it beating the roof pretty hard. Okay, wow. Well, we'll, we'll just... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we have hail. <laughs> oh, wow. As long as we have internet, I guess. Yeah, I guess yeah. Good. <laughs> so... I think the point being, can you and your audience develop an app? And that's going back to how I would start over. I'd find a way to write an app and I don't need to make a hundred percent of my income. If I can make 5% of my income, you know, and then go do that again, create something and put it out where I can sell it and have a, have cash flow, and then turn around and, make something else and make something else. And that's really where we got into real estate was mm. how do we protect 
our money? How do we protect ourselves? Because it gives you that freedom. If you end up in a bad situation with a, a job, if you have other sources of income, you can step away from it. You can choose where you want to work. If you want to, my daughters are very, very animal oriented. They, they love taking care of animals and they, they love pets and they're all about dog rescue and stuff like that. And if that's something that you're into or, or anything like that, if you wanted to go to work for a nonprofit that probably doesn't pay very much, but your heart's there, that's where your purpose is and you really feel like, and I can go do that. If you've got other sources of income, you can maintain a lifestyle that you want to maintain. And whether that's through rental property that my wife and I have invested pretty heavily in or the stock industry, stock market, you know, getting dividends from good paying dividend stocks. We've been investing in Atmos Energy and Coca-Cola for a long time and they pay a nice little dividend every quarter. But then also writing a book, developing an app. About 2011 or so, and I don't know if I have a copy of it on the shelves here or not. I'm sure there's one somewhere. I wrote a book called 15 Minute Mondays, which is what you and I actually talked about, which was basically geared towards helping entrepreneurs and small businesses, even nonprofits, go and develop a website for themselves without spending, at the time, I had friends who were charging people $3,000 for a five-page website and putting all that together. I'm like, you don't need to spend $3,000 to do this. You need to spend a weekend doing this. Mm -hmm. Save yourself three grand or save your nonprofit three grand. And so I'd written that book. The problem with that book I discovered was the web technologies were changing so fast that the book had to be rewritten about every 18 months. Oh, wow. Some of the chapters, some of the principles stayed the same, but mm -hmm. I, the first version of it, I was very big on using Foursquare. You need Foursquare. Okay, does anybody listening know what Foursquare is? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So that, that one took a lot of updating, but doing things like that, that generates a source of revenue for you. And so I put a, a blog together around that, the 15minutemondays.com blog. And I blogged every week for about a year and a half or so. And up to a couple of years ago, I was still selling a book a quarter from hmm. that. And so I, it's a, a definitely a way to generate passive income and develop and maintain your expertise in an area, which I think is exactly what you're doing with this podcast and the things you're doing. You're, you're demonstrating your expertise and you're continuing to develop and grow it in your industry, mm -hmm. which is a, a fantastic thing. So now Ben, how do you monetize that? Right. How do you create a passive stream of income? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the million dollar, hopefully a million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> uh, but actually, so just full disclosure here, actually, I, the reason why I started the podcast, well, one of the reasons there was actually, there was two reasons that were really loud. One was, I felt like there was some really predatory training out there in the Python community where they were over promising and under delivering and they were using money as like a, like, Hey, six figures in 30 days and like never need to never have coded before. And I'm just like, this is complete nonsense. Like, Give a, can we give a little respect to the people that have like sold their souls to this industry, you know? So I wanted to come up, I wanted to create a podcast and get real developers that have like real experience and, and uh, create some sort of mentorship. And so that's, that's this one piece here. But um, I also know that I want to do these, 
these uh, multiple avenues of, of yeah. income. And what better way to learn about the community that you want to interact with and add value to than to create a podcast. So I, I, I felt it was kind of a way to like learn about the people that I'm trying to serve. Right. So full disclosure, I, I don't know if I've ever spilled those beans before, but it's out there now. So that's awesome. <laughs> and, and, and there's nobility in that. There's nothing wrong with making money. In fact, where was it? I, I wrote this down. Let me see if this is, I wrote this down to put here. Okay. It's from uh, the E-myth, the entrepreneur myth. I don't remember who wrote the book. It's somewhere on the bookshelf. The quote is, it can't just be about passion. You have to show a profit. Yeah. You can be passionate about things all day long and you have to be, you've got to have passion. You've got to have love. There's nothing wrong with having that wrapped up with some nobility, but there's also nothing wrong with making a little bit of money from that. So I think this show serves a purpose and to me, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of reward thrown your way for that. You know, you're, you're putting effort into this, you're educating the population and you're providing a great service. So yeah, I, I'd be all for you figuring out a way to, to monetize this a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I hear you there. And uh, I, so I don't, I don't know if now is the time to go into it, but I've, I've been um, toying around with the idea of creating masterminds. So one of like the really cool things about this, like I've, I've done like 50 developer interviews up to this point right now. So like if I had to, I could cherry pick a themed mastermind and and I have really good relationships with everyone that I've I that I've interviewed on here I'm sure they'd come back and be like the expert in this one department and we could we could really throw a kick-ass mastermind I think and especially with this like coronavirus thing like now now we're forced to do digital digital uh masterminds so anyway I think I think that it's starting to ramp up quite a bit and uh, I couldn't be more excited to have your expertise on the show because not only are people going to benefit from it right now, but um, quite frankly, I think you'd be an excellent candidate for doing like partnering with a mastermind, man. So I I, I don't mean to uh, like uh, go too far ahead of myself there, but it has (laughs) been in the back of my head. I think that's awesome. So how are you set on toilet paper? Oh, uh, okay? I think we, I think we got a few rolls around here. <laughs> we, we got a few rolls too. About two months ago, uh, I check woot.com every day. There were bidets on sale. Like the little okay. bidet seat for your toilet. There were bidets on sale on woot.com. And now I'm kicking myself for not buying one. Man, I yeah. When it was on sale. <laughs> oh man. It's such a, it's such a crazy time. I don't, hopefully we look back on this and we're just like, man, what in the world? But yeah, it's a, uh, it is strange i i've never seen anything like it yeah yeah, (laughs) oh it's wild so uh yeah i was curious um if building a new uh stream of income each year is somebody's wildly important goal how would you recommend the uh ideation and then execution on those ideas like how would you kind of go through that process My first instinct would be to say kind of what you were talking about, you know, pick a niche, pick an audience, and you don't try to do a little bit of everything. There's certainly nothing wrong with being an app development shop and just writing all sorts of different apps. But if you were in a specific niche, so let's, let's just use oil and gas or real estate, either one of those. Can you develop stream multiple streams of income within that industry? 
can you write one app in that industry that you're selling for a small fee and then a second app in that industry can you do an add-on to that app or that book or whatever you created so i would say thinking within the industry you're already in how can you add value to that that industry by continuing to develop new things because that's that's where your mind's working all the time i did law enforcement software for 15 years and I thought about law enforcement software in my sleep. And I would have ideas like, you know, oh, we could do this, we could do this, our company could do this. And I realized that you can't go out and compete with your own company, but if there are things that you could add to that oil and gas or real estate or healthcare, whatever that community is, can you add to that? Mm. And I, I think that's a great way to go about doing it. Putting a blog together and starting to create a platform for yourself Get yourself an Amazon affiliates account. So a friend of mine and I, about two years ago, started a just a passion blog. In fact, one of the pictures on the thing, we found this picture of a sidewalk that says passion brought us here. <laughs> and that's on our blog. We were very passionate about leadership within the engineering community. And so the name of the blog is engineeracareer.com. Awesome. And Cliff and I started blogging on leadership within engineering, how to advance your career as an engineer, how to have a better experience as an intern, you know, talking, cause we would talk at universities a lot to the students about how to, how to be successful within, with their summer internship or how to turn your summer internship into a job. And we would do these talks and then Cliff and I would sit around and talk about this all the time in one off. We worked together in his office or in my office, or there's a little pergola outside that we would go sit under and talk. And like, why don't we just blog this? Why don't we, instead of just having these conversations over coffee, why don't we start blogging this? And so we've, we've blogged quite a bit on that. We really haven't monetized that. There've been a few posts that we've connected to an Amazon affiliates account. And I think we've made 96 cents so far. So, you know. Gotta start somewhere. One of these days we will almost, almost have enough in a few years to pay for a month of hosting for the website, nice. <laughs> which, which is in WordPress going back to. Nice. Um, but that's something that we felt that could be turned into something. Lately, we have not been very engaged with the blog just because he's been very busy with a side project he's taken on. And I've really been focusing my attention on real estate lately. So we haven't blogged to that since about December, but it's something I think we both want to get back to. And mm. that's something that anyone could be doing in their industry and would not be a, would not be competition to their main company. Right. So you could blog about things that were going on in oil and gas or real estate or healthcare or law enforcement software. You could blog about those things and develop a platform that could serve you very well later if you ever went off on your own mm -hmm. doing app development. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. It kind of, so you, you had mentioned something about uh, a, a book, the four, it was, oh. it was a Covey book. Yeah. Four Disciplines of Execution. Yeah. Love this book. Love this book. Yeah, these are the two that I, I laid out to make sure I mentioned. So 4DX, and, you, and you'll see that shorthand, the number four, the letter D, the letter X, you see that on the internet a lot. Okay. Uh, 4DX is 
I think the objective is how to achieve your wildly important goals while still locked into your whirlwind. So your whirlwind is your, your daily grind. The things, and we've done this at companies, we've done this within Toastmasters as an organization. I think I've said Toastmasters three or four times. Huge fan of Toastmasters. I am a huge fan of Toastmasters. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't, just to interrupt you real quick. So full disclosure, that's where I uh, originally met you. So yeah, um, yeah just probably should have established that sooner, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, carry on there though. But this book talks about how to measure lead and lag measurements mm -hmm. and how to go about executing on those. So one of the things that the examples they give in there is a shoe store wants to increase sales. Well, it's hard to just say, we're going to force the customers to buy more stuff. You, you can't directly cause that to happen, but you can indirectly cause that to happen by doing the things that you know lead to more sales. So the example they give is every time you go out and you take shoes out to someone, somebody walks into your shoe store and they wanna buy a pair of Nikes or whatever, instead of taking just out the blue Nikes, also take out a pair of green Nikes and two pairs of socks because presenting them with some options leads to more sales. Hmm. And then you measure those, those efforts that you make. You put this down into a spreadsheet and it's very important in the book to have a visual dashboard, a graph of some sort where you can see these things happening. And so you measure that. And what you'll find over time is that if you consistently bring out two pairs of shoes when they ask for the one, you know, as an alternative and two pairs of socks, you're going to have increased sales. Hmm. So we started using that with one of the companies I was working for to help increase some sales of a new product Everybody was in charge of mentioning this anytime they were on the phone with a customer. And every time you mentioned it, we, as a team, got a point. And then we had other things that we were measuring along the way. This wasn't forcing the customers to buy it, but it was helping us do those lead things, those things that we could actually control, bringing this topic up, presenting it to the customers. We could control that. And in the end, we knew that would cause additional sales. Mm -hmm. so I took it a step further when I turned 50. And so being something to look forward to when you turn 50, <laughs> your doctor is going to shove a camera in every orifice <laughs> they can put a camera into. And they're going to stick you full of needles and draw all kinds of blood out of you. Okay. They're going to run all these tests on all this stuff. And they're going to come back and they're going to give you a diagnosis of all the things you've done wrong in the first 50 years of your life. All right. <laughs> so it, it turns out that pepperoni is not a health food. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just so you know now, because apparently I didn't know that. Pizza? Come, <laughs> pizza? I'd, I'd just come home from work and I'd get a handful of pepperoni and I'd sit on the couch and eat pepperoni and watch the evening news. And then we'd have dinner. So <laughs> apparently my cholesterol was high. Okay. And so I use 40X. I set up, I had it on my a Google sheet and I had it on my phone where I could just pull it up. Anytime I ate like a serving of fiber and especially oatmeal, because oatmeal is apparently good for you and helps reduce your bad cholesterol. If I ate a serving of oatmeal, I got a point. If I, let's see, I can't remember. If I exercised for 50, every 15 minutes, I got a point. There were quite a few things that I got a point for. Then there were things that I got negative points for. 
if I ate sugar, so I love ice cream, but if I ate mm-hmm. a thing of ice cream, I took a point away. If I drank a soda or a Coke, I took a point away. And I had have a full-on Coca-Cola addiction. <laughs> Since I turned 50 and had the test done, I bet I've, and that was two years ago, mm-hmm. I bet I've had 12 Cokes. Hmm. Wow. I, just, I just stopped because I saw that number ticking down. Every time I drank a Coke, I had to deduct a point. Hmm. My goal for every day was to score 43 points. Okay. And there were days that I did not do that, but there were days that I did. And in general, that I had that little graph that I did on Google Sheets, and the graph was always going up. Went back six months later because the doctor's like, okay, you know, if you don't get your cholesterol under control on your own, I'm going to start putting you on drugs. And I don't want to be on drugs if I can avoid it. Yeah. Following that 40X of just doing the things that I knew I could control, working out, eating better, not, you know, I have had that beer blog, but I had to give myself minus points for every beer. And I, I still had a couple of beers every day, nearly, you know, because I, I like to have my craft beer. But I was doing other things to offset those so that I got the positive points. Mm-hmm. At the end of six months, I had dropped my cholesterol 15% wow. by doing things that were because I, I can't will my cholesterol down. Right. I can't control that directly, but I can control the things that the lead measurements that I know should end up directly going towards those lag measurements. And so that's what 40X is all about. And you can certainly do that within your program and you can do that within your development of multiple streams of income, doing those things that you know are going to make a difference in the long term. To me, blogging is one of those things. Blogging develops you as an expert in whatever your field is. And and podcasting, I think, falls directly into that thing. I just haven't ever launched a podcast, but I think that's the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Doing that. So for you, something like, I'm going to contact five people a week to try to set up interviews, because you know not all of them are going to come through. Yeah. So if you make five contacts, I, I don't know what your ratio is, if you make five contacts, you're going to get three people that will do an interview with you and you're going to be putting together these podcasts and developing things. And you're going to be finding things that you can then market as a profit center or as a, a value add where you get an affiliate type of income or something. And so I think that's where 40 X comes in for, for you and your listeners as just a great tool. Yeah, that's so one one thing that kind of came to mind because I'd never heard of that before. So I was trying to do my research before the show. And one thing that kind of struck me was like, you know, I I don't know if everybody has clarity on what the leads need to be. Like, how do you figure that out? And and maybe it's as simple as like get a mentor or something like that. Probably. Yeah. It that's hard. You're you're absolutely right. And figuring out that goal. One of the things it talks about is if it's, if it's in a company, and so our, our company, the goal was to generate more income, but then it's on each specific team within the company to figure out how they can positively impact that. Because if management says, okay, our goal is to make more money and your team is going to do this, well, then your team doesn't own it. They're being told what to do. But if the team generates the, their idea for themselves, they're going to own that. And you sit down and you brainstorm it. And maybe, like you said, you you get a mentor. You get somebody who's been through it before that can look at some of those lead and lag measurements or look at those lag measurements, what your 
ultimate goal is and help you come up with the things that you think will affect it. Right. Positive. Yeah. Cause that, that's the whole tricky part. It's like, you don't know, like blogging, for example, like maybe that is like the, 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 the wig or what do they call it? The wigs, the wildly important goal. The wig. Yeah. So the, like maybe that is like the thing that you need to be focusing on, but the lag is maybe so laggy, you know, like how, like you may not get enough feedback. It could be like three years before you're, you know, so that's like a conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> And you're right. There, and you hear people talk about that blogging a lot. Don't expect to make money blogging in your first week. That's not going to happen. Right. And don't expect it in your first month. That's not going to happen. But over time, you've got to build that catalog of material. You've got to build that SEO. Mm-hmm. And then eventually people will be coming to your site and it'll be generating enough interest that you're going to have natural traffic and you've got things there that can generate income that's when you're winning. But yeah, that's it's a long way off, isn't it? And you've yeah. got to find some way to build income in the interim. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you got to think about those things and yeah, you're right. It's, it's a really interesting intersection though, between like agile and then that methodology because agile, like correct me if I'm wrong here, but they're all about like kind of failing fast. Like you never go too far before it's like, we put our minds together. We're like, Hey, we need to, we need to go a different direction here. And like, then, yeah. So I, I just, it's just something that dawned on me here. It's like, wow, you have this failing fast thing and then you're figuring out what these leads are. And it's like that, that some serious magic could happen there. If you could kind of get good at these two things. Like, and I think these do, I think 40 X and agile fit pretty well together. Cause when we were doing that for the company that we we're trying to generate more revenue, we were definitely an agile team. We were deep into scrum and this is an easy add on to scrum. When you start looking at scrum from that task perspective of what am I going to do today? Or what did I do yesterday? What am I going to do today? What's, what are my impediments or my roadblocks? This is part of your, what are you going to do today? This is just another little piece of the, I'm going to kick that flywheel forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm- I, I do think it fits in nice, but you're right. This this is the long view, long view. You got to just kick that flywheel, kick that flywheel, kick that flywheel. Whereas most of the other agile stuff you're doing is spin it up real fast. If it falls apart, spin it up again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a two different views, but I think they work well together. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited to dig into that book. Um, that's another like like uh, you know I'm secretly prying for like people's like you know awesome books that they're reading. So uh, this is a great like I get to do that once a week. You know that's uh, anyway. Awesome. <laughs> cool. So um, let's see here. What do you recommend that doesn't take too much effort but solves like eighty percent of that challenge of diversifying your income sources? Kind of like that Pareto thing. Yeah, without too much effort, that's the the tough one. <laughs> Maybe I didn't phrase that correctly, but uh. <laughs> no, no, no. But there are ways to do that. So there's, in my view, there's really two ways to generate passive income or those additional streams of income. And I'm usually trying to look at it from a passive perspective because I don't want to go have ten jobs. I don't want to continue to trade time for money. We all do it to an extent, but hmm. you only have 24 hours in the day. Yeah, you can't go get three eight-hour jobs and survive for very long. Right. So you can either invest money to get money back 
or you can invest time to get money back. Time is the slower method, money is the faster method, but you have to have money, in the faster method, you have to have money to make money. Mm -hmm. But taking, taking your excess income and investing in some sort of stock that provides a dividend over time, I started that, I don't know, 20 something years ago, 97, 98. And I started putting, I just went out and they had these, you can, it's much easier now. And I can't remember now the name of the company. You had to go through this little company that was sort of like the eBay of stock. And okay. so if I had stock in Coca-Cola, you could contact this company and say, I want to purchase one share of Coca-Cola. And you can, so you didn't have to go buy a hundred shares or something at, you know, a, a big brokerage house. They would put you in contact with me. I would sell you one share of stock for whatever, you know, the value was plus a few bucks or something. And then that company would take a little slice of it too. You'd get your one share of stock. And then once you had a share, you could start in the dividend reinvestment program. You could send them money directly. Now you can just go sign up for those. But I signed up for several stocks and I was putting $25 a month into Atmos Energy. And I was putting $25 a month into Coca-Cola. And then when I would get a raise at my job, I would take part of that raise and I would just, so okay, now I'm putting $30 a month into Atlas and Coke. Now I'm putting $35 a month and just trying to grow that as my income grew. Got to the point where you just forget that's happening. It's just coming out. It's sort of like your 401k plan, but it's coming out ahead of it. And now, I mean, I can't retire off of what I have in Coca-Cola or Atmos, but I've been investing 20 something bucks a month for 20 years and mm -hmm. it pays then those all pay quarterly dividends. So they're buying back in so that stock is just generating and generating more money. So I would say that's an easy way to start. That's a slow play too. It's you're going to see revenue quickly. You're just not going to see a lot, but the more money you put in, the more you'll see mm -hmm. as for investing a little more money and buying a rent house, that was the best thing I ever did. If I could go back again, the only thing I would change is I would start sooner. I would okay. buy a real, I would buy a rent house sooner. Of course, if you're living in an apartment or a rent house, my recommendation to everybody is go buy a duplex. Yeah. Go buy a duplex, live in one side, rent the other side. That's nearly going to make the payment for the whole thing. And then save up money. You go buy a house and now you have two units that are generating income for you hmm. for the slower play of investing time. I think what you're doing app development on the side is, and that, that may not be somebody may hit on a genius idea and that may be a very fast way to generate income, mm -hmm. but it's going to take time to develop a good application. Yeah. And you know how long it takes to, even as simple as we were talking earlier about it being, you know, oh, just throw a couple of things on there and boom, you got an application. But coming up with the right application that solves the right problem that right. people will actually pay to have that problem solved. Mm -hmm. That takes some time and effort. But if you can do that, man, you've got a great source of income there. And you didn't have to go invest money in it. Yeah. I guess like the big thing that I'm catching here is like maybe just to ask yourself, what's the risk? You know, maybe it's time or whatever. So you just kind of got to you just yeah. got to uh, spread it around a little bit. So yeah. there's no, like with the whole stock thing. Yeah. 
maybe it's not going to, you're not going to um, buy an Island or something from that strategy. But I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things in your flywheel and it, and that's, that gives you that momentum. So I'm, I'm really resonating with what you're saying there. I was curious, what do you, so kind of inverting that question I just asked you, what do you think is overly difficult and something to stay away from when trying to diversify your income sources? <laughs> I can't remember what year this was. I decided that I was a stock investing genius. Okay. And instead of investing in drip stocks, stocks that paid a nice dividend, I was going to invest in growth stocks. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I was going to invest in penny stocks. And I had the misfortune, I guess you could call it misfortune, I had the misfortune in the beginning of picking great penny stocks mm. that grew and I made money and I made money and I made money. And then one day I made a bad choice and I lost it all. Mm. So to me, that's something to probably stay away from is trying to pick the next stock that's going to go through the roof. There are people who can do that. I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm more of a slow play guy. So for me trying to pick a stock and just, I'm going to buy the stock and in six months I'm going to sell it because it's going to go through the roof. That, that may not be the right solution. I've always chose the tortoise method rather than the hare. So that, that get rich quick. You were talking about, you started the podcast because you were seeing all these things about earn a six figure salary with no experience (laughs) and learn Python in a weekend. Right. I see that all the time in real estate. You know, hmm. earn six figures starting your first month by flipping houses. Well, let me tell you, as somebody who's flipped a lot of houses, that is not a six-figure income in a month or, or does not generate a six-figure income. You go in and start flipping houses and, man, there's there's a disaster. Every, not every time you turn around the corner, but there's frequently <laughs> a disaster that's going to suck more money out of your pocket. It becomes just a, a money pit. Hmm. So the, the get rich quick scheme to me, I guess, just like you were talking about would be something to avoid this. I'm more of a slow play guy. Yeah. But if somebody yeah. figures out the get rich quick thing, email me. Cause I'd like <laughs> to hear you know, if you're guaranteed. Yeah, no, that's no, that's excellent because what that brings up is like a marketing thing. Like, um, people are becoming more savvy where it's like, uh, maybe they're not out. Like, I think I'm pretty sure it's illegal for them to be like, get rich quick, but pretty much that's what they're communicating to you. And you can't wait to whip out your wallet and go buy, you know, whatever right. they've got to offer. So kind of like getting into the whole marketing thing. Cause I know, I know that's like a passion button for you too. You, you help people out with that. I was, uh, I was wondering if we could pry into that a little bit. Um, why do entrepreneurs love to do business with you in the marketing realm? Most of the entrepreneurs that I work with tend to be startup and solopreneurs and tend to be non-tech people. Okay. So when I've, I've done this stuff, especially with 15 Minute Mondays, I do a quarterly class with a massage therapy school. The students coming out, they're, they're launching their own business. They're going to be entrepreneurs and they're going to fly out the door and they've got to find a way to communicate their expertise. They've got to find a way to market themselves online because I think the guy's name is Tim Knox. He used to be a contributor to entrepreneur magazine and he's just a serial entrepreneur. One of the things he said, I'm probably going to misquote him, 
but it's something along the lines of, I don't care if you are a one or like a mom and pop shop or a 10,000 employee corporate giant, if you don't have a website, you're losing business to people who do. And so that's what I try to talk to these massage therapy people about. And I work a lot with authors, people who are you know trying to generate income through writing books, but they need to have a web presence. Mm. But I always bring it back to a non-technical perspective. How can we get this up and running for you so that you don't have to go spend three grand to have a five-page website or you don't go out and pick the wrong tools. It's, it's very easy to go pick Wix or Squarespace. And those can be great tools for the right environment. Mm-hmm. But the free version of those, you're not getting a, a real website. You're getting ads on it for Wix or Squarespace or something. And then as you start adding on things like e-commerce, if you're wanting to sell gift certificates for your massage therapy or you're wanting to sell your book online, as you start adding on e-commerce, that price starts ratcheting up very quickly. So how can we get you set up to have success without having to be tech oriented or without having to spend a ton of money? Cause you're a startup and you don't have that ton of money to spend on technology. Mm-hmm. You got to focus your time on your business that you're growing. And this is just a tool. So I would say that's why I have a lot of, I say a lot of success. I, I feel successful and I feel like the people I'm working with feel very successful coming out of it. Cause we do approach it from a very, hands-on, you can do this. It's no more difficult than having a Facebook page. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. It's almost like, um, it's just nice to have some handholding, like sure. from, from like, uh, just some other aspects in my life, like things that I'm not very comfortable with. Maybe, yeah, maybe I could do it, but just having some, some like spoon feeding going on, like sometimes that's nice, especially yep. if you're, kind of like, okay, you're a Keller Williams guy. You've got to be drinking that Kool-Aid about the one thing. Right. So I, that's my copy of the one thing <laughs> I used to give before I was even involved in real estate. I had, I was not aware that was Gary Keller of Keller Williams. Yeah. I was giving copies of that book away to people. Yeah. It's I a cool book. The one thing it is a great book and is not real estate oriented and fact, it wasn't really until I got to Keller Williams and I'm like, oh my God, that's Gary Keller and Jay Papasan or whatever his name is. Yeah. Those are the Keller Williams guys who wrote that book that I was using to manage IT teams and lead IT teams. Yeah. Yeah. And it just kind of dawned on me what you were saying. Like the reason why people like to do business with you is because they can focus on their one thing and your expertise is this other one thing. And it's just a really symbiotic relationship. So I, I think I'm really, I'm picking up what you're laying down there. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and that's exactly what you're doing too, is you're providing value in an area that, and expertise in an area that people don't have it. And they don't need to have all of that expertise. You're providing some of that and helping them focus on their one thing, which is making an income through whatever their chosen career is. Yeah. Yeah, there's like this is industry agnostic. And that's another thing that I like about it. Because you had mentioned something about the 15 minute Mondays, how it became challenging to you because it se- it sounded like it was really tactical. So and, and that's like the the continuum. It's like you're either tactical or evergreen. And like, how do you make that compromise? And there's a place for both of them. But if you're tactical, you've kind of signed up for like, I got to update this freaking thing every <laughs> as soon as I just finished writing it, it's out of date. What? 
So what, they release a new version of WordPress? <laughs> Are you kidding me? They just finished this. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's you know, to each their own, whatever whatever yeah. you're into. But no, I, I hear you there. Um I was curious about uh have you seen any trends in the marketing realm uh between what people are asking for versus what they actually need. <laughs> There's always that. There's always that. Trying to figure out what the real need is. So we, that's funny that you say that we just had this conversation, uh, a group of friends who are realtors talking about real estate and working with especially couples of a husband and wife are going to have two very different views of what this house they're going to buy should be. Hmm. and where where are the wants where are the needs where's the lack of congruity between the two so yeah figuring out some of that there's, there's always that and i think in every industry there's just a confusion over what you want versus what you need and going back to what you brought up the one thing figuring out what you really need and trimming everything else away. And that's a very agile principle also is mm. focusing right down on this is what provides value. All of these other things are nice or fluff, but that's not really what you need. What you need is this tool a, and then if there's time and money, you can add on those other side pieces, but focus on this and helping people understand that that's, that is tough. Yeah. In, in any industry, any industry. Yeah. See, uh, some of, some of these questions I ask, I don't know how I would I, how I would deal with it on on your end. <laughs> like, it just seems really tough. But I'm always curious. Like, if you're the marketer and you're trying to come up with these solutions, like I just reflect on my own experience. Like, if the if the customer, I mean, is the customer always right? You know, like they they're they're the ones with the money. But you know, if you're trying to give them your superpowers, maybe what they, what they think they want and what they need are, there's some disconnect there. How do you reconcile that? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll tell you a funny story from, from software development. Police officers, and, and I, I tell this story all the time, we don't hire police officers for their typing skills. Right. Our police officers, we, we the, the citizens of, of the city system, we hire police officers to be that barrier between civility and insanity. And we hire them to be that line. Typing is generally not their forte. And, and that's fine. But in the world we're in now, there's a lot of typing that officers have to. They've got to fill in all these forms. So we had a police department call us up one time and say, they were trying to help their officers save keystrokes. Like, oh, that's brilliant. How do we help you help the officers save keystrokes? We want, we don't want them to have to hit tab all the time to move from field to field. So after they type someone's, you know, like their first name, their middle name, their last name, as soon as they finish typing the name, we want it to automatically move to the next field. Hmm. They're like, tricky. We're talking about some magic. Yeah. So, is their last name John or Johnson? Because if we get to John and auto tab, right, we're losing part of their last name. And so that was because they just they knew this was the solution: auto tabbing when you finish typing someone's name. <laughs> no way without reading their mind. So that the solution for that was to hook electrodes to the officers' <laughs> heads and and do some and 
we weren't nearly that far advanced in our technology. Yeah. So that was one of the things they really wanted that. They had a solution in mind. We had to come up with another solution for them. Was it like autocomplete or something? Or what, what was the compromise? I think that was one of those things that was just magic and we could never solve it. Mm-hmm. We did have a product that would fix part of that, which was uh, swipe the driver's license and it pre-fills the form. Okay, but a yeah. lot of times what was happening was in the field. And this was really pre computers in the field we were just getting to like the big i think they called them like uh, tough books or something so it was a a laptop computer but it was four inches thick because it was ruggedized and you could you know drive over it or whatever yeah you could drive over it or the officer (laughs) could pull it out of the car to to beat a perpetrator who was unruly or something you know giant thing so we were just getting to that and really having the good connectivity back to the office through the cellular network so most officers didn't have that and they were still doing reports on paper and having to type it in. But what we did have was something where if you were back at the office and you had their driver's license, you could swipe it and it would fill out all the person's information. And so as we advanced and the cellular network increased in throughput, we were able to take those things out into the car and they could swipe the license, which is what we're all seeing today. Now when yeah. you get pulled over, the officer is not typing in your information. He's swiping your driver's license through there and it's pre-filling all that. So that's, that's all basic functionality now that wasn't in 2002 or three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I guess that's true. Sometimes you'll just run into project requirements where you just got to be like, dude, uh, that's not, we can't do that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to need to call Dumbledore to get that one called. So it's going to take a little magic. Yeah. <laughs> Dumbledore, Gandalf, they have software development companies now. You can go give them a call. Yeah. The the other one I, I love is kind of like the light switch uh, mentality that I, I, I run into periodically. It's like, oh, it's so easy. You could just like, you know, right? there's like a light switch thing or you're like, yeah. <laughs> Super easy idea for you. It'll be so, you're a developer. This will be so easy. You fix computers, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just like I'm so I I wouldn't say jaded is the word, but I am I am as soon as somebody says like, oh, this is gonna be easy, like something triggers in my brain where I'm like, wait a minute, what are we not looking at here? Like that's anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've been in the industry a long time. Yeah, <laughs> you know how that goes. Super easy. We used to have a sales guy who would go out and basically make promises to the client. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. We can do that. And he'd come back in like, yeah, the client needs this. And it's just basic VB. And we're, this is part of our solution was in Visual Basic. Okay. And he had taught himself enough Visual Basic to drop some things on the form and, you know, click a button and whatnot. Mm-hmm. This is basic VB. You guys can do this. And we're looking at it going, this is magic. Or this is... This is a 12 month project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, I'm, con- I'm constantly on the hunt for trying to like fig- figure out the, the way to set expectations, I guess, through uh, the project management piece. Like it's something that's, I'm, I'm trying to get a grip on. I, I'm probably, I, I wish I was better at project management and then I could set those expectations a little better. But yeah, yeah it's a project management is a whole, oh, you can write the software, but can other skills you need it's like (laughs) yeah it's a tricky business get get yourself that book man i wish i could find it over here on the bookshelf it's somewhere um scrum twice the work and half the time yeah from a project manager perspective especially for a software team 
I'm not a big fan of, and I may offend a few people, I'm not a big fan of the PMI approach. Although PMI now has an agile approach that can certainly be applied to software development, but the people who have come up through the ranks in standard, you had the PMP certification yeah. through Project Management Institute. Me, that's not the, the best way to develop software, but having a, taking an agile approach, man, as soon as your team gets on board with it, you can start lighting that stuff up and really making some great advances. And like you're saying, fail fast, come back. The, the PMP approach assumes that everything moves forward and works the first time. And that's mm-hmm. not how, you, you know, that's not how software works. Hmm. So I think the agile approach to me, that was just a godsend when we got that and changed the way we turned around our, our software. Development. So I, a little story that I'll give you on the agile side. We had just gotten that sheet and had just really started doing the agile and doing it. Like I said, we were doing what we were doing before, but with daily standups, we were calling ourselves agile. Mm-hmm. And one of the president, or I guess the president of our division of the company brought our team in, the developers, the QA, the support people, the salespeople, and basically said, if this team doesn't get profitable, we're going to cut you all off. Hmm. This department goes away. And we really doubled down on our approach to agile. And the next thing you know, everybody in the company is doing agile. Wow. Because we had turned ourselves around through this hmm. agile process and getting away from the giant waterfall documentation, getting away from that standard PMP oriented project management and agile saved us. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing a little more homework on that. Cause uh, it's, it just seems like super applicable, at least to something yeah. on right now. So cool, man. Um, when, okay. So when it comes to uh, uh, marketing, like, we like as an entrepreneur, you can maybe kind of get by on your own for a little bit, but when do you know that you need to get a professional involved? Like when do, when should they get you involved? I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't even yeah, really I do don't myself know. as a marketer. I just try to help people develop their web presence and let them market themselves. Okay. But when's a good time to get me involved? Anytime you have extra cash that you want to give to me, that is a great time <laughs> to get me involved. Perfect. <laughs> Say for someone who needs a little coaching with SEO, needs a little coaching with the tech side of getting their website together, that's a great time to holler at me. If you want to expand your Facebook presence a little bit and go beyond, f- figure out how to approach social media marketing. And of course, I'm always a big content marketing guy. I, I love having a blog, a podcast, something behind it that you can work around. But I think there also has to be, because we are talking about social media, and there's that word social in there, there has to be a social selling aspect to it. I had a friend for a long time who'd gotten into the phone market. I, I don't want to go too far because it'll you know, point out who he is. He got into the phone market. And every post on Facebook was about the phone service he was selling. And you just can't do that. That's not, that's not how, especially on a social media type platform, like LinkedIn, LinkedIn's very business oriented. And if that phone service were business oriented, yeah, posting business things on LinkedIn is one thing, but on Facebook, people want to see your kids and they want to know about your family and your life and what you're doing. 
And I think you've got to socialize some of that message. And that's where I think some people have difficulty hmm. switching from selling the social and maybe needing a little coaching on that's where I could assist someone in that area. Okay. Or if they want to buy a house in Lubbock, Texas, have them call me. <laughs> You're their guy. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> cool, man. Yeah. I, I know we're, we kind of ran up on the hour and a half here. Um, do I, do I have a few minutes or do I need to kind of, yeah, you're good. You're good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cause I wanted to dig into some of the leadership stuff too. I know this is a huge passion button for you. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain what is leading from the side. Sure. Absolutely. So that's something I've talked about a lot. My first First rule management role. I was promoted at a company. This was been late nineties. And it was at a time we were, our little division was here in Lubbock was owned by a company out of Omaha, Nebraska and teleconferencing, those sorts of things. You couldn't really manage a team remotely. That, that concept didn't exist. So you needed an in-house manager. And I was that in-house. I, I became the in-house manager when my boss retired and left. I'm like, Ooh, I'm next in line because I got the most tenure, you know, and I just failed miserably as, as a leader and a manager for the team. I was just a poor choice. And that's, that's unfortunately something we see a lot in the world of engineering is we take the person who's really good at job a, and we make them the manager of people who do job a because they, they did job a well. So surely they can manage and lead people who are now doing job a, but without training people how to lead, you're, you're almost guaranteeing the failure of that new leader, that manager. And it's unfortunate. I, I, and I don't know if you got a chance to watch that speech that I sent you, but I talked yeah. a little bit about letting my daughter or teaching my daughter to ride her bicycle. And we mm -hmm. know when we teach a child to ride a bicycle, there's going to be skinned knees. There's going to be crying. There's going to be blood involved. There, you know, something's going to get damaged. We know this is going to happen and we're prepared for it. We're prepared to pick that little child up, dust them off and say, you know, that happened to me too. It's okay. But when we promote people into management and leadership positions and they don't get it the first time, you get a lot of, Oh, I told you so. That, that wasn't going to work. I, that was a bad choice. We knew that from the beginning. You shouldn't have promoted that person. We don't lift that person up and dust them off and give them another chance. So that's what my boss did for me. When I crashed the, the leadership bicycle on my first role as a leader and manager, my boss didn't say, I told you so. He didn't fire me like I thought he was going to. He picked me up and he taught me to lead and he taught me to lead from the side. He taught me, and that's something I think we need to be teaching our engineering teams, our technical people, is how to lead from the side because once they know how to lead from the side, they can lead from the front of the team also. And so to me that is teaching people how to work and lead other people without really having a position of authority or without having a title having them organize small team events that gives them the ability to work with the team to facilitate having them lead meetings leading meetings i think is a fantastic way it doesn't always have to be the team leader or team manager 
who is leading those meetings, move it around the room. You know, Ben, this is going to be, you know, March is your month to lead all the team meetings. And some of the people on your team are going to be like, oh, my God, I don't want to do that. But it's, it's a skill development. They yeah. facilitate that meeting. They learn to interact. They learn to keep people focused on a topic. They don't have any position or authority other than that they're the meeting facilitator. Mm -hmm. But it allows us to teach people to lead. To me, listening is a huge part of learning to lead, listening to what other people are saying. And for me, that was my, my boss back then who picked me up and dusted me off, as I said, telling me that, you know, hey, so-and-so has a problem. I need you to listen to them. And I need you to not provide a solution. So for us as software developers, our come, entire come again, culture, no solution. Right? Exactly. <laughs> our entire career is solve this problem. And then as my wife will attest to, you know, for guys like us, guys want to solve a problem. Oh yeah. It's hardwired. We hard are the solution problem. providers. Yes. So if you're a guy, you want to solve problems. And if you're a guy who's an engineer, you really want to solve problems. Yeah. And learning to not solve a problem and just listen. It's gotten to the point sometimes when my, you know, my wife will tell me something. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. Because that's, that's, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to tell my wife this podcast is out because I don't want her to know that my secret. <laughs> but it's like, oh, that, that sucks because that's my default answer for I'm hearing you and listening, but I'm not providing a solution. Yeah. Like, oh, no, I need you to. How do we fix this? I'm like, oh, sorry, I didn't, I, was, I switched into the other mode. Yeah. No. So when when you say that, uh, it reminds me of one of the seven habits of highly effective people, where yeah. they talk where they talk about um, seek first to understand before being understood, and they talk about this. Uh, uh, I, I think they call it empathic listening. Yeah. And I remember yeah. going through the training, and I was just like, this feels so weird because they're basically saying like you're telling me you're a problem and I'm like, Oh, I'm sure you'll figure it out. You know, like it's just, it's so, I don't know. It's a skill. I feel like it'll take me a lifetime to figure that one out. I hope it doesn't, but anywho, that's what kind of triggered in my brain when you, when you shared that. Absolutely. And to, to me, that's also a great skill to have as a software developer, going back to the story about the police department that wanted us to have the, software automatically tabbed from field to field after somebody filled in part of the person's name. The first response is that's magic. That can't be done. <laughs> but what we needed to do is we needed to understand what is it they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Understand that first, then provide a solution that's not magic. And I can actually see this book sitting in my bookshelf. So I'll, I'll tell you this, this was similar to the seven habits, not just entitled, but one of my favorite leadership books is the seven pillars of servant leadership. Okay. It's by James Seif and Don Frick. This is an amazing book on leading as a servant, which means to me, leading as from the side and servant leadership are very closely related. It's giving, it's helping, it's providing to others and doing that from a perspective that makes you a leader. Hmm. So this, this is a great book and goes to a lot of the points we're talking about right now too. 
Yeah, that's, that's excellent. It's almost like you're looking at my notes here because that was a question on my leadership section here is, what is servant leadership? But we, we, I think we, uh, we found the resource if people want to look into it. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add around that or, or do you feel good about um, where we left that, I guess? Yeah, so I, this is, to me, this is the, the treatise on the whole matter. Okay. As a Leader by Robert Greenleaf. This is an amazing book. And this book, The Seven Pillars, is based upon The Servant as a Leader. This is just a little, this is more, The Servant as a Leader is more theoretical. The Seven Pillars of Servant Leadership is more tactical, I would say. Okay. I think it, it's really just seeking to serve first. And then that naturally takes you towards a leadership position. Okay. And if you're truly seeking to serve, not I'm serving you just so I get that promotion, but serving first and having the heart of a servant, I think you're going to find yourself in a leadership position. Hmm. And that's, that's a great thing to have, especially in the software industry. We need more of that. Excellent. Yeah. On, on this same topic here, I was curious what, um, what are like, three top recommendations you have for inspiring people into action. Cause it's, I, I find that's the big, that's the big conundrum. Like we can sit here and pound the table all day, but how do we get that person on the other end of the podcast to, to execute, you know, and inspire them into action? And is that a form of leadership or I feel oh, like it is, but. I, absolutely. Absolutely. It is. What you're doing is a form of leadership. You are going back to, the servant as a leader, mm -hmm. you're serving and that puts you into a leadership position because you're doing this out of passion. You're doing this out of your heart. You're doing this out of a sense of giving to your community, to, to the Python community. And that makes you a leader in the, in the world of Python and in, in the world of this app development for, for profitability. What gets them inspired to action, I think is probably a lot of what you're already doing too. Maybe just it hasn't lined up, you know, the thought of what you're doing and how that directly impacts somebody by sharing stories. I think that's one of the ways we connect and inspire. Mm -hmm. I get inspired by hearing that people are able to accomplish this or accomplish that. And that inspires me to go and do something like that. I think also finding out what's in it for them. Now that's very difficult. I would say in a podcast perspective, Mm -hmm. finding out what's in it for your listener because you're not talking to them individually. But when you're sitting in at the at your job and you're talking directly to someone, before you give someone an assignment and just say, hey, you go code this. I think helping them understand what do they gain besides their paycheck? What do mm -hmm. they gain by coding that? What skill are they walking away with? How are they better as a result of this? To me, that was one of the things that my boss, when, you know, going on the leadership side, when he picked me up and dusted me off, he started explaining to me, this is how this is better for you. This is how this helps you. And it started connecting me with doing the things that the team needed me to do, that he needed me to do, and that really I needed to do for myself. So it's finding that connection and providing the inspiration that you're doing through practical stories. The Going back to our conversation about the get rich quick kind of ideas, that sounds great, but there's not a you're not really inspiring anyone into action. Sometimes mm -hmm. some of that stuff, once you get into it, is so daunting that like I don't I can't do that. And then 
And that's when you find out that there's an upsell. Uh, oh yeah, this is, <laughs> I, took, I took a stock trading class one time and you, you take the class and then they're going to sell you their products. The class was 99 bucks and the product was $2.99. I'm saying, oh, man, I really want that product. I, I talked myself out of it. A friend of mine bought into it and then found out once she got in that, well, the thing you really want, the next tool up is like 199 a month. It's $2.99 for a membership in this thing. And then there's the add-on for the real tool. And so you start finding out there's this just grind of money you got to be spewing out in order you think you're going to make money. Yeah. And so that connection was not there, but helping helping connect people and inspire people through real stories of how people are succeeding, I think is a great way to, to urge your audience into action. Yeah. I, I'm just, uh, I'm always kind of curious, like what, uh, so like there's accountability tools mm -hmm. and stuff too, which that, um, like agile that like you're every day, you know, you're ha you have this form of accountability and yeah. even the, uh, four, uh, the four disciplines of execution. Yeah. I did like a, like a quick, like cliff notes, YouTube video trying to get wrap my brain around it. But I think there's like an aspect of, accountability with that too with the whole like dashboarding and right so yeah it makes it makes a lot of sense what you're saying there um i, yeah. I want to take it back to your mastermind idea yeah i think you can provide that for people that sort of accountability and coaching and not to try to tell you what you should be doing but i think that's something that you have a great grasp of and people need so mm -hmm. providing that sort of accountability and coaching through a mastermind program or something, I think that's some would be a huge service to a lot of people. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking looking forward to exploring that. I have um like I'm in the I'm plotting and scheming right now. Like <laughs> like after this podcast, I'm going back to it. Like I've been uh, kind of working on it, and uh, I it's kind of like a resource I wish I had. And that's what? I think that's another place that this whole thing came from. It's like. I just, I wish I, I don't live, I don't live in a tech community. You know what I mean? And so it's what better excuse to get on awesome humans calendars than a podcast. So right. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of like, uh, you know, hidden agendas going on here, but it's, it's for the greater good. <laughs> so <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, I guess the last question on leadership I had for you was when do you know when you're ready to lead? I'll tell you when I get there. <laughs> yeah. I have never felt ready for the role I've been put into until after I've left that role. Um, man, every promotion I've given, every office I've been elected to, and, you know, going, going back to our Toastmasters conversation. Yeah. This past August, I just got off a two-year stint of being on the board of directors for our international organization. Hmm. And people were, you know, saying, hey, you should, you should run for the board of directors because it's an elected position from the membership. You should run for the board of directors. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should run for the board of directors. Then I start going thinking, man, I don't know what I'm doing. And prior to that, I had been our, our district director here in our local district for a year. And when I got elected to that, I was terrified. And I was terrified of being on the board of directors. And I'm on an external advisory board for the computer science department at Texas Tech. And when I got asked to be on that board, I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. So 
when you're thrust into these leadership positions, I think fairly often you're not ready, but people see potential in you. And you're not ever going to be ready until you jump in with both feet and, and just go for it. So if you're a little bit scared to be in a leadership position, I think you're, you're probably ready to make that leap. If hmm. you're super confident that you're ready for that leadership position, you may not be. <laughs> you may, I can't remember what you said, but you said something a minute ago about understanding and getting the full grasp of what the, the project is or the solution. Yeah. Sometimes people don't have that when they're thrust into a leadership. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for this. And they get in there and they're like, oh, my Lord. I, <laughs> yeah. So much going on here. Yeah. But being a little bit terrified is probably a good thing. Being super terrified maybe is a bad thing. Being overly confident may be a bad thing, but a little bit terrified, but willing to do what it takes. I think that's when you're ready. Okay. Yeah. That's. And if if everybody around you is telling you that you're ready, you just don't see it for yourself. You've got to put faith in those other people who are, poking you and saying, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And when they do that, you're probably ready. Yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I, it's, it's really resonating with me because basically like, I, I think when it, when it comes to life, like pain and pleasure, we kind of, we're always trying to avoid the pain and, uh, like that leadership, maybe it's uncomfortable pain is might be involved in growing, but I, it's just been something on my mind. It's like when something sticks out as like, Ooh, I don't want to do that. Like maybe, maybe try and gravitate towards those things. I mean, you have to use your judgment a little bit, but, um, things that's where growth occurs. Right. Is, is kind of, so I, I asked that question, like just curious about your perspective on that. Um, but I'm com- completely resonating with you. And uh, so thanks for sharing that. So I just, I just had a couple of closing questions here for you. Um, uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Boom. <laughs> <laughs> the best piece of advice I've ever received. <sighs> wow. I don't know. There's been so many great pieces of advice. I should just pick one. I would have to say, and this is, this feels trite as I'm saying it, but believe in yourself and go after the things you want to go after. If you want to, and truly go after it, not just, you know, apply for something. Don't just apply for a leadership position, but truly go, if you want that in your company, truly go after it make yourself a better leader and then go after that position. If you want multiple streams of income for security in your own life and for your family, go after that. There's nothing wrong with wanting a little bit more and pursuing it. So. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Thanks. What, what is the most important book to read this year? Mm, I'm gonna go with the one thing. I wish I could find it. <laughs> I, I got my copy around here somewhere. Get your copy. Okay, good, good. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, there it is. I see it. I see it. <laughs> Sorry, I've got like six bookshelves in here, stacked with books, and they're not in a good order. But yeah, this is an amazing book. Jeff Sutherland's book on 
Agile Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time is a fantastic book if you're looking at an agile project management, but just for your life. Oh, wait, 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 no, no, no. Dang it. Essentialism by Greg McCown. Okay. The one thing or essentialism, they preach the same topic. Maybe since I'm a Keller Williams guy, I should go with the one thing. I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> very, very rarely can, can folks uh, actually just pick one book. So it's kind of a trick question. Uh, but thanks for sharing, you know, uh, multiple resources there for everyone. And uh, as far as like everything we've talked about today, what is the message you want people to leave with? Having a great job is not, does not guarantee you security. You've got to go build your own security. I, I, I should have said the one, the hundred dollar startup is the one book, but going out and building that income for yourself, finding multiple streams of income so that you can have the freedom in your life to do the things you want. I think that's the message that people should take. I know we talked about a lot of topics, but mm -hmm. that's something that's near and dear to my heart right now and has been for a long time is trying to preach that message, preaching it to my children, trying to make sure that they're setting themselves up and that you know, they both have really good jobs. One's an engineer and one's an accountant. And I just want them to focus on having multiple streams of income so that one day if something were to happen to one of their jobs, they're okay. And mm -hmm. they've got the freedom to do what they want to with their lives. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, where do people find you if they want to connect with you? Is LinkedIn like the best place? Or LinkedIn's a great place. I'm on LinkedIn okay. every day. Tracy awesome. Thomas, LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, it's not my address, but you know, yeah. find me back LinkedIn, Tracy <laughs> Thomas. Yeah. And we'll, I'll make sure it's in the show notes. So awesome. man, did we leave anything off the table here or did we do a good job? You think? I think we covered everything. We covered things <laughs> I didn't know we were going to cover. <laughs> I told you there'd be a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, getting into the weeds there a little bit, open some can of worms, but yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I look forward to, uh, releasing this out into the wild and, uh, I don't know. I, I guess we'll be talking to you folks soon. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Uh-huh.